Uh, we're looking at a passage today, as uh, Bev pointed out when she started her reading, that follows on from uh, the Upper Room Supper. So I've got an Upper Room there, and, uh, and Judas has just departed in the bit where we pick up uh, our reading today. We're going to look today at uh, 13 and 14. The week after that, we're going to look at uh, 15 and 16. And then the week after that, we're going to look at uh, chapter 17. We're going to see this week, the Father and the Son. The week after that, we're going to look at the Son and the Spirit. And then in three weeks' time, we're going to look at the Son and the Believer. So that's what's ahead for us. And all of this happens while Jesus is, it sounds like, like he says, let's go. And we're we're literally at the door of the Last Supper upper room, and we have about five or six chapters it sounds like he has a lot to say just before he pops out the door. So uh, that's, that's where we are. And they're incredibly instructive chapters. They'll be really helpful for us. And today we're going to be looking particularly at the Father and the Son. Now, historically, there's a, uh, a question that gets asked, particularly if you're a, a Presbyterian. The question is, what's the chief end of man? Does anyone know the answer to this question? The chief end of man is to love God and enjoy Him forever. No one knows this anymore, is that right? You're all looking at me crazily. What, what's the, so, so the idea is, uh, this was a set of questions that you would ask uh, all the people. They had to know all the answers off by heart. The first question was, what's the chief end of man? Or what are, what's the purpose of human beings? And you would say, the chief end of people is to love God and enjoy Him forever. Now, it's, it's amazing that none of us knows that as the answer. That's okay. I hope you know the idea the idea is that the, the purpose of humanity is to love God and enjoy Him forever. Some basic head nodding. Good, good. Hopefully that's not a new concept because I'm not planning to teach you that today. There's a book I read called Let the Nations Be Glad. And, and in it, uh, the author, John Piper, asked the question, what is God's chief purpose? And uh, he blew my mind in, uh, in page, I think it's page two of the book. It says, the chief end of God is to love God and enjoy Him forever. I literally put the book down and walked away from it. I just, went, I just need to think about that. I, I don't even know if I like that. Is, is that right? What, what it's saying is God is most concerned about in the whole world, His glory. That's the thing that He is most concerned about in the whole world. I, I love uh, of this picture. This, this is a picture of the uh, radar operations room uh, in, um, in one of the radar stations in London for uh, the Blitz in World War II. And the idea was that uh, on this big table here, the radar would start to pick up when the attacking planes were coming in, and you'd move these little markers on the ground to show where the attacking planes were. And then up on the wall there would be the squadrons that you're, you're dispatching to go and meet them, and you'd be able to plot them and work it all out, right? This is a big plan, and the big plan is keep London safe. That's the big plan. Everything in that room, all of that technology, as advanced as it is, how amazing is that, little lights uh, and little dials, uh, all of that technology is to do one thing. And what I want to suggest today is God is all about one thing. He's all about His glory. He's all about His glory. And and if you think maybe that's not true, why don't you have a look with me in the Bible? So we're going to go to uh, John chapter 13. Uh, which was read for us before. It's on page 1080 in your Bibles that are this size. And if you've got the slightly larger ones, I can't remember exactly, it's like 1640 or something like that. 
So we're going to John chapter 13. I'm going to read uh, verses 31 to 32. When he was gone, that is Judas, when Judas had gone, Jesus, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now your first response might be, I just heard a lot of glory in sons. Is that right? The, the point here is that, that God is saying he will do something for the glory of his son and the son will work for the glory of the father. We actually see this just a little bit before uh, in, uh, in Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus's account, uh, Lazarus was a friend of Jesus who died. It says in uh, chapter 11, verse 4, it said this, When he heard that he was unwell, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Hear that? Jesus is about to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. Whose glory is it for? Well, it's for the Father. But who will be glorified in the process? The Son. What what I want you to see is that the hour has now come for the Son to be glorified. Have a look in verse 31, you can see it. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Something is about to happen in John's account of Jesus' life. What is about to happen is that Jesus is about to be lifted up and honoured. And we might go, great! About time some people honoured Jesus in this account of His life. Perhaps they're going to have a coronation for Him. Perhaps they're going to put Him on a throne in Jerusalem. The way Jesus, however is about to be glorified, spoiler alert, the way Jesus is about to be glorified is in the cross. Rather than being lifted up for a throne, Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross and humiliated, and it's going to be on the cross that Jesus is glorified. It's something so horrible, as I'm sure I'll repeat at Easter time, it's something so horrible that the cross was not the symbol of Christianity for at least 300 years. But here it is. Jesus has said, my hour has come. I am now going to be glorified. He's all about glory. Now, one of the things he says again and again is a little bit like this. Uh, Everyone knows what this is. Uh, It's a thing uh, unlike lost socks or lost pegs or lost keys or various other things. This is a thing that you throw away and comes back. Jesus is it pains to say again and again through these chapters that he will go and he will return. He will go and he will return. Have a look with me where we see that in, uh, in um, verse 33. He says, my children, how beautiful is that? He's, he's with his disciples. Uh, it's the Passover meal. And here Jesus is basically playing the role of dad to the family. Who's his children? His disciples. My children... I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. He says, I'm going. I'm going to leave you. And then we see in 1428, if you flick over to the other page there, 1081. In 1428, he says, you heard me saying, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. He said, I'm going to go and I'll return. But there's some immediate consequences of Jesus saying this. Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't come. So the disciples have made a life for the last three years of saying, we're doing follow the leader, right? 
Wherever Jesus goes, we're going to go. And now Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to go somewhere you can't follow. I'm sure that started to mess with their heads. He assures them, though, I'm going to return. It will actually happen that I return. But the, the response of them is a failure to understand and a growing fear. So Jesus, hang on, hang on. You're going to go. We got that. We don't really, it seems like they almost can't hear him say that he's going to return. They don't hear that at all. You're going. We can't follow you. And their response is scratching their heads. And I think at the pit of their stomachs, this whole thing doesn't work if you're not around Jesus. If you go and we can't follow you, I don't know what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. I don't know who I'm supposed to. You, you can't go, Jesus. Don't, don't leave us. And I think this is Jesus' response. He doesn't pick them all up, but how beautiful is that? We, we want to know this comfort, don't we? And Jesus offers comfort to his disciples. Have a listen in, uh, in chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Do not let your hearts be troubled. So their, their first response is, we're troubled. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. So what does this comfort consist of? What's he told us he's going to do to comfort his fearful disciples? The first thing he's going to do is he's told them he has a place prepared for them. I don't know if I've showed you this before. When we, when we went to, um, uh, to Bali, went into one of our hotel rooms and there was this thing on my bed. And I went, what exactly is that? And it's a towel elephant. Has anyone had a towel elephant in their room before? Oh, some people are nodding. Great, okay. I was unfamiliar with the towel elephant. Certainly there are no towel elef elephants after I've been in the room. The towel elephant is dry. I mean, is, is wet and collapsed on the floor. But, but here we are, a towel elephant. The only reason you'll ever find a towel elephant in your room is if someone knows that you're coming and has a whole lot of spare time and some wicked origami skills with a towel, okay? The wonderful thing is, I walked into the room, I go, these guys know I'm coming. This room is prepared for me. How beautiful. Ha have a listen to what Jesus says. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Jesus is saying to you personally, He has prepared a room for you. I can't guarantee tail elephants. But here's the thing. There's actually a spot for you beyond the grave. Life eternal is prepared for you. A room that's made up with your name on the door. A place is prepared. That must be a comfort for those who are fearing and afraid. Jesus says, I'm going before you and I'm going to prepare a place where you feel at home and where you are with me. Secondly, uh, Jesus says, he's got a job for us to do while we wait. He has a job for us to do while we wait. So his first comfort is, I've got something for you at the end. I've got a room for you. His second comfort is, don't worry, if you don't know what you're doing when I go, let me tell you what I want you to do. Now, this is very complex instructions. Um, I'd like you to be paying a lot of attention uh, to see if you can hold all this in your head. Have a look at verse 34 of chapter 13. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. 
Anyone at any pains to understand what we need to do? It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? And in fact, Jesus has just taken off his outer garment. He's washed their feet on the floor like a servant. He says, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. And do you know what? The early Christians got this. I, I was reading through the week. Have a listen to this. At no other time in the history of Christianity did love so characterize the entire church as it did in the first three centuries. <laughs> I love that. It's not three weeks, by the way. Yes? The first three centuries. And Roman society took note. Tertullian reported that the Romans would exclaim, see how they loved one another. Justin Martyr sketched the Christian love this way. It's a quote from a, a guy who was writing about 150 AD. We who used to value, he's talking as a Christian, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else, now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with everyone who has need. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. Clement, another guy writing in this, uh, in this time, describing the person who has come to know God, wrote, He impoverishes himself out of love so that, he, so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows that he can bear poverty better than his brother. How amazing is that? He likewise considers the pain of another his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. It goes on to say that when a devastating plague went through the Roman world, what would happen, the plague would come to the house of the pagans, and even if it was a family member, what they would do is they'd throw them out of the house so that they might not be infected. The Christians, on the other hand, loved and nursed those who were dying. Many of them became infected and died themselves, but they, beca they became the only people in society who loved and honoured those who'd been thrown out. When Jesus said to the early church, love one another, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. He wasn't joking. And the early church took him seriously. Is there an implicit challenge there at all for us at all? There must be, mustn't there? The first thing was a pace prepared. The second thing is a job while we wait. The third thing was a promise of assistance that Jesus would be able to help us while we wait as we love. Have a listen to what it says in uh, chapter 14, uh, verses uh, 12 to 14. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. There's the offer of assistance for those who are waiting. But I reckon most of us are just going, exactly how of what we're going to do, how is it going to be greater than Jesus? Let me, uh, let me have a think with you about that. Uh, everyone remembers this sign from Mass, don't you? Greater than, okay, great. Because you know that less than is like an L. Do you remember that? No, okay, I'm teaching you things here today. Is this right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, oh, I did it the wrong way around, is it? Uh, anyway, you get it. Uh, that's the greater than symbol. Okay, so 
Uh, when he says that you'll, be, you'll do things that are greater than that of Jesus, he does not mean, greater than does not equal more things. We won't do more things than Jesus, okay? It's not just that there'll be a greater productivity of us. That, that's not what he means. And he doesn't mean that we'll do more impressive things. Jesus went and raised from the dead a guy who had been dead for how many days? For three days. But Lord, he stinketh is what they say before they open the tomb, yeah? The guy's dead. Oh, I'm going to do more important things than that, am I? I don't think that's really likely. So it can't be that it's more impressive. In what way then can it be that what we will do as the church is going to be greater? Well, I think it's going to be better. Dot, dot, dot. Better. Here's, Jesus actually tells us the how. How will it be better? He tells us because of his location. Uh, have a look at the end of verse 12 there. You'll do even greater things than these. And we put a full stop there. Have a look at the text. Have a look, seriously, have a look. In verse 12, we put a st full stop. They will do even greater things than these. Full stop. It's not a full stop. It's a comma. And what's after it is really important. Because I am going to the Father. All right. So why does that matter? Why does it matter that he's going to the Father? Well, well let me do uh, my Bible timeline and explain to you why it might be better for us after Jesus goes to the Father. So this is the Old Testament uh, on this side here, that's the pictures that explain the Old Testament. And these are my pictures that explain the New Testament. We have the present age, which goes from creation uh, there through to the bit before God makes all things new again here. The new age has come, the age to come, has arrived when Jesus turns up. Jesus breaks into the world and starts something that's brand new and fresh. We live here before the end in what we're calling the overlap of the ages we are when the present age is still going and when the age to come has not be, be, be does not uh, has begun but isn't the only thing happening so in this thing called the overlap of the ages Jesus has been raised to life again and he's sitting at the right hand of the father we're waiting for the day when he returns and will only be in the new age. So we're in this overlap of the ages. Why does that matter? First of all, what we do today, we do in the context where the devil has been defeated. He cannot win. He cannot win. That's good to know. Secondly, we do it in a time when the sun is exalted. So when Jesus was walking around, okay, he was getting sweaty, getting dust on his feet, he was able to be crucified by those who opposed him. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Okay, that, that's where he is. He reigns utterly unopposed. What that means is he is able to help us do his works without any hindrance and without any constraint. The works we do are better because the devil has been defeated by Jesus, because he reigns unopposed at the right hand of the Father, and because we have begun a mission where everything is clear. When Jesus was in the world, he was speaking in parables and not everyone understood him, right? They didn't know that he was going to be glorified on the cross. They didn't know when he died that he was going to come back to life again. Today, you and I can announce the good news of Jesus better than Jesus. How? Because we've got the whole story. We've got the whole story. We can tell the whole story. So we can say birth, sinless life, death in our behalf, resurrection exaltation we can tell the whole story 
It'll be better because we have the whole story. It'll be better because the devil is defeated. It'll be better because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Well, if all of that is true, how should we pray? Uh, I love this picture. Uh, it's a boy standing in his grandfather's work shed. And uh, I, I love that, that he's there. What's he there to do? Well, he's there to learn from his grandfather. He's there to be an apprentice. At New Life here, we talk about following Jesus as being apprentices. Apprentices to Jesus. Apprentices become like their master. They learn the trade of their master. How should we pray? Well, let me suggest this to you uh, from what it says here uh, in verses um, 12 to 14. And so uh, I will do, Jesus says in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, so that, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So what do apprentices to Jesus need to do? First of all, is we need to learn to think like the Master. We need to learn to think like the Master. So a good apprentice will end up looking like their Master. In order to pray well to Jesus, we actually have to have the same mind as our Master. How do you reckon that happens? Netflix binging. Doesn't it? No? Soap, opera, magazine, consuming. Internet surfing. What else do we do with our time? I can't think of anything else we do with our time, do we? It, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? In our free time, in the time that's yours to define, uh, I understand for some of you it'll be hard to conceive that there is such time. I'm thinking particularly of young mums. Um, in the time that's yours, what do we spend our time doing? What do we spend our time filling our minds with? Are we seeking after the mind of our master? Or are we filling it up, filling it up with rubbish? If you want to pray such that God will answer your prayers, the first thing you better do is know the mind of the master, yes? Secondly, if you know what the mind of the master is, asking what's opposite to what the master wants, how likely is he to do that, do you think? All right, not very difficult, is it? Right? My kids know that I love them to take uh, their muddy shoes and run all the way through the house as they come in from being in the rain. They, they know that I love it. And so that's why they do it. Is that right? I'm actually not sure about that entirely. But, but here's the thing. If you know the person, you know what they love. If you ask what they love, they'll be delighted to give it to you, won't they? So, Dad, can I take my shoes off when I come inside? No. And I'll say, yes, of course you can. And here's whatever else you want to ask for after that. If you, I keep on telling the kids, if you do stuff that makes me happy, you're far more likely to get a bunch of other stuff anytime you ask. Are parents getting this? All right, so, so show me that you get me, and I'll be delighted to pour out what you ask me. Uh, look, guys, I, I reckon we get so confused about prayer because we, we miss the intimacy of the relationship, right? Parents and children, I think, is a great analogy. And if the, if the kids have no idea what the parent loves, right, the parent's going to do what's good for them, but it might not feel like it to the kid. You hate me. Why do you do this to me? 
no one's had this conversation recently with their children, have you? Guys, don't we know this feeling, yeah? I do not hate you. I love you more than you can possibly understand. And I am doing something here for you because I love you. And it's killing you. And you are telling me you hate me. And I will persist in it because I love you, not because I hate you. We need to ask what pleases our master. And then can I ask that we would wait on the master? Why don't you do it right now? Because now isn't the best time for you. Or maybe now isn't the best time for me. It's quite possible that your heavenly Father who loves you and cares for you has purposes beyond your time scale. We'll do well to pray like that. Well, let's think about fathers and sons, which is kind of what we've been talking about. I asked people for a famous set of fathers and sons. These are the best ones I could come up with. I couldn't go past uh, Indiana Jones. Henry and Junior, no, anyone, no, it doesn't matter. Um, does anyone know who these old blokes are over here? The Bushes, very good. Bart and Homer, anyone know who these guys are down the bottom? The Kerrigans, fantastic, from the castle, very good, okay, all right. Fathers and sons, fathers are like sons, all that sort of stuff. Have a look at the, the connection, the intimacy between this father and this son. I, I'm gonna hit you with some ones that we see here. In, uh, in 31 to 32, we see that the Father and the Son are alike in glory. Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in Him. They're alike in glory. They're alike in faith. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's a staggering claim, isn't it? You believe in God, believe also in me. They're alike in knowing. If you really know me, Jesus said, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. They're alike in knowing. They're alike in loving. Whoever loves my commands, Jesus says, and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Can you see that? How about this one? In living. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Isn't that extraordinary? The Father and the Son together will come and live in them. And yet we see that they're distinct as well. Jesus says in verse 28, you heard me saying, chapter 14, verse 28, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And Jesus says in verse 31, the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. They aren't the same. They are distinct. There is an incredible intimacy between the Father and the Son. An incredible intimacy, such that loving in glory, in faith, in knowing, in living, they are one. So what do I want to tell you? At the Last Supper, at the door of the Last Supper, Jesus says this, the Father and I are one. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. They seek glory for each other. 
all right, all those things are true, and here's what I reckon is going on. This is unique to Christianity. And here's the thing, it, it causes us to scratch our heads, doesn't it? Yes? It's actually one of my, uh, sidetrack for a second. Uh, sidetrack for a second. This is one of the reasons that convinces me that Christianity is God revealed and not me constructed. Okay? Because I'm looking at your faces right now, right? And I'm going, if I wanted to do this, I would have three gods. I would have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I tell you, we've got three gods and they're awesome and they hang out together and it's fantastic. The Bible tells me how many gods we have. That's right, we have one. Okay. And it says that the, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father or the Spirit. They're separate, but they're one. And as I look at it, I go, it just kind of confuses my brain. And all I'm doing today is showing you the data. But here's the cool thing. If you were to invent a God, you would not invent this. When I went to India, when I went to India, I've told you this before. When I went to India, sitting in a cab in, uh, in Mumbai, and on the dashboard is an elephant head on the body of a man, Gane- uh, Ganesh, I think. And, uh, and if I'm in India, I would make a God like that. Elephants, big, impressive, powerful. People, I'm able to relate to people. Elephants, great memory. What do I do? Well, I'll take the head of an elephant and put it on a person. That way it's accessible to me, but has all the awesomeness of an elephant, yeah? That's a God a man would make, yeah? A God who reveals himself to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in yet three persons. Not coming up with that. Why do I tell you all this? I want to encourage you that Jesus is revealing the truth about his Father here. So what's the take home? Well, let's consider this. I want to ask you to consider four things. Would we say that our grand plan, are we all in for God's glory? Because God is. So are we all in for God's glory? Or am I here for mine? Do we experience God's comfort? Do we know what it is for Him to comfort us or do we live in fear? Do we embody God's love? Are we people who would be truly said they'll know we're Christians by our love or do we seek ourselves? And fourthly, are we praying God's will or mine? Father, I don't care what you're thinking right now. I've just got to tell you what I want. That'd be a pretty honest prayer, wouldn't it? What if you could take the biggest trouble in your life right now and sit down with God? Sit down with God. And go, God, here I am. I just want to tell you about the thing that's weighing on my heart. The burden that I can't get rid of. The thing that's crushing me. The fear that's controlling me. What if you could sit down with God? Do you know what's crazy about that? You can. What do we need to take from today? Do do we need to know His comfort? Do we need to learn again His will? Do we need to be people who are marked by love? What is it that needs to change for us so that this burden might be carried with our Heavenly Father?
what would change if we applied the things that we've learnt today? After all, where else could we turn? You know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to the Father. There's no need for us to fear anymore. Jesus is the truth. It means that we won't believe the lies anymore. Jesus is the life, a life of fulfillment. We need not live in emptiness anymore. What I want to encourage you today is that there is life in Jesus' name. If we know the Father, we will know the kind of life He is on about. If there's no Son, there's no life. You'll find the life, the hope, the truth, the way in Jesus to the Father. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to ask for those of us who are indeed weighed down today, that we might do exactly what, what we just imagined, that we'd sit down to you, that we would understand what it is to bring our cares and concerns to you. Father, would you change our selfishness and give us a passion for your glory? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd take away our fear and replace it with your comfort. Lord, I ask that you would save us from selfishness, that you would characterize this gathering here by love, a sacrificial love for one another. And lastly, Father, I pray you place deep in our hearts a passion for your will, that we would chase after your heart, that we would pray things that you delight to answer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.